Well, today, as I mentioned, we're in the book of Genesis. We've been traveling through Genesis. We see that God creates humanity. Humanity rebels against fall. Sin enters the world. And we see that sin grows, and it grows to the point that God brings judgment in a flood. We saw that last week. We often talk about the flood being a sort of cute children's story. It's the destruction of the world because of the hardness of man's heart and his love of sin more than God. This is not a feel-good story. But last week we saw this. We saw ten ways that the ark actually provides salvation for Noah and his family and how it pictures salvation for each of us. So today we're going to see ten truths about the redeemed life as Noah and his family leave the ark and go to live the new life that God has called them to. Well, interesting thing about uh, maybe two years ago, my family had the opportunity to go visit an actual ark. There's a, a man named Ken Ham who in a, the middle of nowhere, in a small town in the United States, he built an ark, taking the biblical measurements, and the biblical mandate, and what it looked like. He built an exact replica of the ark, and you can see my boy standing in front of it. Because the ark is far behind him, you really can't see and grasp the, the enormity of this huge wooden structure that God had Noah built. This replica was a neat thing for our family to be able to visit. And I was struck by how absurd it felt. What I mean by it felt absurd, this ark is built in a small town, nothing around, no water around, no ocean, no lakes, nothing. It's just a boat sitting in the middle of a field. And that's what Noah did. It seemed absurd what God called him to do, and he built this ark in the middle of a field. Yet God takes that which seems absurd and he uses it to save. He uses it to rescue. So today we're going to cover Genesis chapters 8 and 9. I'm going to read to you from chapter 8 verses 1 through 19. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 8 verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rains from the heavens was restrained and the water receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the ark, the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him 
to see if the waters had recited from the face of the earth, of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters had dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the ark, the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, we recognize unless you speak, nothing of true significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week, we saw the ark as an instrument of salvation. God used it to save Noah and his family. There was one door onto that ark. There's one way to be saved. You've got to trust in what seems foolish and march into what essentially is a coffin a place of death. You've got to be willing to die in order to live. And we see that God brings Noah and his family through to the other side, saving them through this ark that Noah had built in faith. And today what we're going to see is ten truths about how the saved lived. Ten truths about the life of the redeemed. So once you've experienced salvation, once the Lord has saved you, how now do you live? We're going to see 10 truths in Noah's story here about that. The very first one. Verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. The redeemed are remembered by the Lord Know that God knows who are His, and we are secure with Him. He will not lose any who are His. He's got us in the palm of His hands. We're secure. No one can snatch Him, snatch the redeemed from His hands. He remembers. He does not forget. Church, that's important. Enemy wants you to forget whose you are. The enemy wants you to say, God doesn't really care about me. God doesn't care about what's going on. 
We're in a season of conflict, season where there's disease, season where there's economic difficulty. We're in a season of deep challenge. Yet know this church, the Lord remembers. He has not forgotten us. He will not forsake us. We are secure with him and he'll see us through. So how do the redeemed live? We know that God remembers us. The enemy wants to feed you that lie that he's forgotten. He doesn't know what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. He remembers, and he is with you in the midst of it. God has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He may not answer our prayers as quickly or in the exact manner, that we would always hope. He doesn't promise to do that. But he does promise. He will be with us and he won't lose us. Once you're his, you're secure. God remembers Noah. And he remembers all the beasts of livestock on the ark. And it says halfway through verse 8, and God made a wind blow over the earth. What you're going to see is when Noah gets off the ark, it's a recreation it's as if a second chance has been given. Adam, the first man, fell in a garden. And now Noah, he walks off the ark into a new world. He walks off the ark and the wind blows, much like it said the wind blew in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the earth. We're told it's in the seventh month. That it came to rest in verse 4. We see in Scripture that numbers often have some significance. Number uh, 7 is a number of completeness. It's the number where God rested on the seventh day. Let me tell you, God did not need to rest. God is in need of nothing. He is self-sufficient. Yet, He rested to set a pattern for us. You and I, we need rest. We are dependent. We can't make it on our own. And the ark comes to rest, just as the Lord would have it to on the Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is in present-day Turkey. Some believe they found the remains of the ark there. We don't know for sure, but it's this high mountain. And in verse 6, it says at the end of 40 days. Now, the number 40 in Scripture is typically a number of testing, a number of trial. We'll see 40 days, 40 years. We'll see this number over and over again. And the water is drying up in the mountain. The boat's been resting for 40 days now. And Noah opens the window and he sends forth a raven. The raven never returns. Have you ever seen ravens flying in the air? I can tell. Sometimes I'll look and I'll see a, a pack of birds and they'll be flying in a circle like this in the air. When you see that, what does that tell you? Death is near. When you see birds flying in a circle, you know that there's something down below that's dead. And those birds are going to go feast on death. The raven, that's what the raven eats. The raven feasts on death. He delights in death. He loves to eat death. And he goes out. The water's still there. It's lowering. 
And what does he see floating on the water? Animals. Humans. He sees the greatest food buffet a raven could ever imagine, and the raven feast on death. This is a picture of fallen man. Fallen humanity seeks to satisfy their soul on death, on sin, on things that will never, ever satisfy. They will always leave you empty, and this raven never returns. So in verse 8, he then sends forth a dove from him. A dove. The dove goes out. And the dove looks. And the dove can find no place to rest. A dove will not feast on death. A dove will not go eat those dead animals floating. No, the dove flies around, finds no place to rest. And that brings us to our second point of how the redeemed lived. The redeemed are not satisfied living on death. You seek to live and satisfy your soul and your heart and your life on sin, on the death of this world, it'll never satisfy you. It'll always leave you empty. Do you know the most miserable, person, miserable condition a person can find themselves in? It's not the unbeliever who feast on sin. That's their nature. Before Christ redeems us, our nature is fallen. And we will feast on sin, seeking to satisfy our soul, but it never will. And it's not the Christian who's been born again. And though they may struggle with sin from time to time, they don't live on it, they don't dwell in it, they run from it and they repent. Now here's the most miserable person you will ever find. The born-again Christian, who's a new creation, who God has redeemed, they're not what they once were, and yet they seek to go live in sin. They seek to go live on death. That person will be empty. They'll never be satisfied because they're not living who God has called them to be. They're not living out their nature. I know in a congregation our size, there's some of you here. If you're honest with yourself, if you are a redeemed child of God, and I don't assume everybody is here today. There's some of you here today, and, and you may come to church every week, but you may not have trusted in the good news of Christ. You may not have repented of your sins. You're welcome here. You're always welcome here. We pray that God will redeem you. But there's some of you here today, and though you are a redeemed child of God, you still find your life unfulfilling unsatisfying. You're still looking for the things of this world to deliver something that only Christ can. You see, where does that dove return? The dove, in verse 8, it says, halfway through, so he put out his hand and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. That's verse 9, I'm sorry. The dove returns to his master. The dove will not rest in the junk of this world. That's the third thing. The redeemed rest with the master. There is no place to find rest out in this world. Go try it. Many of you have. You're not going to find rest out there. No, remember I said his name means rest. 
and the dove returns to the one place the dove can find rest, and that's with the master. That's with Noah. We only see a dove twice in Scripture. Right here. And many of you are probably thinking of the second place we see the dove. It's a very famous passage of Scripture. When Jesus is baptized, the Father speaks, my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Son is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus Christ in a dove. Because the dove will only find rest in the Master. You are going to find rest nowhere else outside of Jesus. He is sufficient. He is enough. The answer to our questions are quite simple. Many of us learned them when we were kids. People refer to it as a Sunday school answer. Jesus. Where do I find rest? Jesus. Where do I find hope? Jesus. Where do I keep returning? Jesus. He's the only place I can go. Is to Jesus Christ. You will never find rest for your soul anywhere else. The redeemed only find rest in the master. He sends out the dove a second time in verse 10. It returns with an olive leaf. The water's going down. The third time Noah sends out the dove, the dove does not return because the dove is made to live in a new kingdom. That's how the redeemed live. The fourth thing, the redeemed live for the new kingdom. The kingdom's not here yet. We are waiting for the day when Jesus Christ will return and usher in his kingdom in the full. The kingdom is not here yet. But let me tell you, it is here yet. Contradiction. Oh, look around us. The kingdom of God is not here. Go out there. You don't see the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God in this world? It's us, the Christians. We don't live by the standard of this world. We live by kingdom standards. And we will only be satisfied in kingdom living and living for the kingdom of God that is to come. So the redeemed, we live for the new kingdom. And Noah, the dove goes out into the new world to live there. Down in verse 16, God now speaks to Noah. And here's what God says to Noah. Go out from the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, the eight of you, go out. The redeemed go out into the world. The redeemed live on commission, on a mission. Verse, uh, fifth thing is the redeemed go out into the world, the fifth point. Jesus said, go, make disciples, of all nations, we have a mission. We go out into the world, and he gives Noah a mission. The redeemed obey the mission that God calls them to. We have a calling, it's clear. As a Christian, the most merciful, the most gracious thing God could do to you, as soon as you become a Christian, is to bring you into eternity with him. But he doesn't. He leaves you here as a Christian to be his ambassador for this kingdom, the kingdom to come here in this world. He leaves you here with a mission. And we see some of that mission here uh, with the next, number six, the sixth thing that happens. In verse 20, it says, Then Noah 
built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and, off, and offered a burnt offering on the altar. The redeemed worship God in a pleasing way. We go out into the world declaring to lost humanity there is a God worthy of worship. And there's no better way to live than to worshiping that God with your entire life. Do you know that? The entirety of your life is an act of worship to God. You know, we often think we gather on Sunday to worship as a body. We do. Corporate worship is vital. It's important. The enemy will do what he can to keep you from gathering here on Sunday. Let me tell you. He wants to get you distracted, to think I don't need to be there. You need to be with the body. God needs us together. We need one another. I need you. You need me. People next to you need you. We're needed with one another. The enemy wants to get us distracted from worship. But that's our, what God has called us to. We go out and we proclaim the gospel message and other people begin to worship the one true God. And Noah, the first thing he does when he gets off the ark is worship God. He worships God in a pleasing way. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of his heart is evil from youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God makes a promise. I'm not going to do it this way again. Your worship honors me and pleases me. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is worship. And let me tell you, some of you, if you look back at where the Lord redeemed you, we all have different stories. Some of your stories is, hey, I don't know exactly when I became a Christian. I know I believe. I know I trust Jesus, but I don't remember that moment. And there's others who remember the moment. You remember walking in darkness and God turned you around, redeemed you, saved you, you became a new creation. And when you became a new creation, you worshiped him. He's worthy. And as Noah walks out into this new creation, he worships God. Chapter 9, verse 1. For the second of three times that he'll say this, he tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Second thing we see the redeemed are fruitful and multiply. Now, here it is talking about literally being fruitful and multiplying more humans. Noah, there's only eight of you. Have children. Animals, there's only two of each kind. Have children. Multiply, fill the earth. But it's not only talking about physical reproduction. There's also a spiritual reproduction where we see more and more Christians. Some of your stories, God may not call you to be fruitful in the physical sense of having children. That's God's calling. Know that He is good and He's gracious. But God calls us all to be spiritually fruitful, spiritually faithful, to see multiply, see more people as a result of our faithfulness, what little faithfulness we have, that God take our lives and use them to impact others for His glory. We're to be fruitful and to multiply. In verse 2, chapter 9, it says, The fear of you and dread shall be upon every beast. Before this, humanity and animals lived in harmony. 
How many animals will run up to a person? You've got maybe a trained dog, but every other animal just about will run from humans. They'll either run or they'll fight you. There's a fear between animals and humanity. And that started here. Then God tells Noah that he's free to eat of the animals. He's given him dominion. Just like God gave Adam dominion over the earth, he's given Noah dominion over the earth. You can now eat animals. Up to this point, they hadn't. For all of you who like tibs and to eat meat, you say amen. The Lord has said you can eat it. That's good news. Nothing wrong with it. God also establishes capital punishment. God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth like this again. There's coming an end. I'll destroy it in a different way. But until I come back, if someone kills another person, I'm leaving you to be my instruments of judgment. So God gives Noah a mission, a commission here. And down in verse 16 of chapter 9, it says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God tells Noah, Hey, when you see rain coming, Noah, don't get scared. Don't think another flood is coming. God's going to destroy the earth again. Rains will come, but I won't destroy the earth by rain again. And when you look and you see that rain coming, about that time that rain is ceasing, you're going to look up in the sky and you're going to see a glorious rainbow reminding you, I'm a God who keeps my promise. I'm a God who holds true to my promise. You can rest secure in the promises of God. And that brings us to the eighth way the redeemed live. The redeemed trust in God's covenant. Trust in God's promise. I'll tell you one of the tragedies. The rainbow is a sign of our faithful God. Yet in our fallen world, sinful humanity who's rebelling against God's design for marriage between one man, one woman. That's how God designed marriage. He's the one who created that way. And rebellion against that, the sign of the rainbow, has been hijacked, taken over by people to say, it's going to mean something different. Now, when you see that rainbow, you look and you say, God is faithful. God is good. He's gracious. He keeps His promise, and we can trust the covenant of God. This is what's called the Noahic covenant in Scripture. We, our great hope is in the new covenant. Jesus has come. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God through His blood as we repent of our sin and trust Him. We trust in the new covenant. The redeemed live trusting in the covenant. Down in verse 20, chapter 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. What you're going to see here is God is recreating the situation of Adam with Noah. Noah's in a garden. He plants a vineyard in verse 21. He drank the wine and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. What's Noah do when he gets off the ark? Worships God, plants a vineyard, gets drunk and passes out nude. Is Noah the Savior? 
Oh, God used him to save people, and Noah had a righteous heart. But Noah is still a sinful man. Noah is not the Messiah. He's insufficient. He can't redeem humanity. He can't make us right with God. Noah's like Adam, in a garden, forbidden fruit, realizes his nakedness. One of his sons delights in his father's nakedness, and the other two boys carry an animal skin over and cover their father. Do you remember how Adam and Eve had to be covered by animal skin? How is Noah in his sinfulness covered by animal skin? God reminds him, you need a covering. You've got to be covered by the blood of the lamb. It'll be fulfilled in his son, but Noah is not the lamb of God. Noah is not the Messiah. He's not the ultimate savior. He's insufficient. And throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see the same story over and over and over again. Insufficient. This person is not a savior. They can help you for a little while, but they are not sufficient to deal with the greatest problem of sin that you have. So God himself will come. God the Son taking on flesh, living a sinless life as an all-sufficient Savior. So here's the ninth thing we see about the redeemed. The redeemed still struggle with sin. You and I, when you've been born again, you're still going to struggle with sin. You know why? Everything about you is a new Creation. You are a new creation when you come to Christ. Only one thing about you is not new. These bodies. They're called bodies of death. Ten years ago, I could preach without my glasses. Now if I take my glasses off, I can't see you. I can't see the Bible. I can't see anything. My body's not getting better. It's falling apart. It's dying. It's getting worse. Oh, but one day, as your body aches, as your body hurts, one day we're getting a new body. One day Jesus is going to return and these broken, fallen bodies, we're going to be in a new body that he's going to give us. I wait for that day. You can't get too comfortable in these bodies. He's going to restore them, renew them. A new creation, we long for that day. But until that day comes, this fallen flesh will still struggle with sin. Be quick to repent, but we'll still struggle. The tenth thing, the redeemed feel the consequence of sin here on earth. I need to add that. The redeemed feel the consequence of sin here on this side of eternity. You, if you're redeemed, you will not feel the ultimate consequence of sin. What's the ultimate consequence of sin? Death eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's the ultimate consequence of sin. But for the redeemed, we won't feel that. But we will feel the consequence of our sin on this side of eternity. It stings at times. It reminds you, you're not home. You gossip, you'll feel the consequence. You lie, you'll feel the consequence. You cheat, you'll feel the consequence. It reminds us, this in my home. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. And Noah, he pronounces a curse on his son Ham and on Ham's son named Canaan. He tells Canaan, he says, your, sir, your offspring will be the servants 
of your brothers. Canaan's going to be the servant of his brothers. This is fulfilled in the book of Joshua when God's people go and take the promised land, Canaan. That's the fulfillment of this verse. But I want to let you know that in man's sinfulness and man's brokenness, Scripture has often been twisted for man to do what he wants to do. And there have been those who've twisted this verse to justify slavery of Africans. It's been done in the history. It's tragic, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's broken. The argument is the descendants of Ham moved to Africa and they said they'd be the servant of his brothers. So therefore we justify them being the servants. It is wrong. It is sinful. It is broken. And our world still feels the implications of humanity who in their sinfulness takes Scripture and uses it for their own sinful purposes. That's a broken thing. It's the thing I mourn and I grieve. And so does God. We have to be wise in how we interpret Scripture. Be on guard. The enemy wants you to twist Scripture, wants you to misunderstand Scripture, to take it out of context and to use it for your own glory, to use it for your own gain. And tragically, people have done that throughout the history of the world. Because you know what the enemy wants to do? enemy wants to do all he can to stop Rev 5-9, stop Rev 7-9, every tribe, tongue, people, nation gathered at the throne of God. If he can get different nations, different ethnicities, different people hating each other, he delights in that. We labor for unity. Different backgrounds, different generations, different nations. We come together to worship God because we are one in the blood of Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. It's only through Jesus that we can do this. In this story, we see this about Noah. Noah is an insufficient savior. Noah goes into a garden just like Adam. He eats the forbidden fruit like Adam. Is exposed naked like Adam. He's covered by an animal skin like Adam. We see a curse go forth like with Adam. And what we see is no matter how many restarts God were to give us, let's try a restart. Push it again, push it again. Same results. Because until God deals with our sinful heart, the problem will, be over, will happen over and over and over again. And there's only one way for our sin to be dealt with, and that's through Jesus. And as Christians, we may wrestle with sin, but we are not defeated. Oh no, we're not defeated. We have a victorious Savior who will give us victory over sin. And that's glorious news. We can have victory over sin through Jesus Christ. Church, I pray we live in victory. I pray we walk as the redeemed. I pray we live like the dove. Resting in our master, not like the raven, going and feasting on the death of this world. Church, we have great hope. 
in challenging days and difficult days, we have a great hope. We have a sure hope. And we can rest in that hope because that hope is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I know I'm insufficient and I know I'm fallen and I know I can have a tendency in my fallenness to even misinterpret your word. So God, if there's anything I said that was less than your truth, if there's anything I've said that was misunderstood, if there's anything I've said that did not glorify you, Lord, please protect the hearts of this body. But Lord, the things that come from your word that are true, that are of you, may they penetrate our hearts and minds deeply. Thank you for saving us. Lord, I know there's some here today who haven't tasted salvation. We pray they taste the joy of being redeemed by God Almighty, that they would step out in faith and trust in the grace of God that's offered through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as a church, as we leave being the gathered church, and as we move to being the scattered church, may we scatter and go out into this world boldly, courageously, joyfully declaring the greatest message the world has ever heard that though we are sinful God has made a way for us to be made right through Jesus Lord now as we sing one more song may we truly worship the God who saves Amen